Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about the Upper Room, please visit uroom.org. Miller is in Colorado with our You Are Denver family. Um, and so he had asked me about a week and a half ago um, if I would share. And of course, I was really honored <laughs> that he would, um, would ask. And I thought at the time that I knew uh, what it was that I was going to speak on, but in typical fashion, Monday, uh, everything changed. And I was like, oh, no. Uh, we were in um, a prayer meeting, actually. There's a group of us that have been praying on Mondays for you. Um, and just for this community that um, really recognizing that we're in a season of blessing and increase and favor. And um, let me tell you, in a season of increased favor and blessing, it's a lot harder to stay dependent on God because uh, you want to kind of lean on your resources, lean on your gifting, lean on uh, your own vision. Um, but I'm here to tell you that you have amazing leaders um, that are committed to only building how God wants to build, what God wants to build, when God wants to build it. And so we've just been uh, meeting on Mondays to pray and um, lean in and get wisdom from, from God about how to handle growing services and lack of seats and child care, you know, overflow and all sorts of stuff. And so as people were sharing kind of what they were sensing and sharing dreams and all of that, the Lord took me to a passage of scripture, which I'll get to. Um, but it was, you know, sometimes when he talks and it's just like this fragmented word, like it's, it comes with a real sobriety in your gut and you're like, dang, the Lord is speaking something. But it's so random that it's like a bunch of puzzle pieces that you're like, I don't get how this all fits together. Um, that's how it was. And so I was just keeping silent because I was like, I'm not about to splatter paint some messy word. I, I kind of want to figure out what the Lord's saying. And, um, and so towards the end of the time, Michael's like, wow, Kev, you've been pretty quiet. Like what, you know, what's going on? What are you, what are you sensing? And so I shared a little bit, you know, of my splatter paint word and his eyes got big, and he goes, that's your message Sunday. And I'm like, my message? That was barely a coherent sentence. Like, message? Like, no. So I had to wrestle with God because I was like, I already have a message planned, and it's in me, and it'd be easy. But now I have to sit. Ah! And so um, I wrestled a little bit. But as, as I sat in this word, um, he slowly started to bring... <sighs> the puzzle together. And um, man, I just, I, my heart is burning. It's so beautiful how the Spirit of God works, even how Trace started this service, that um, when the kingdom comes on earth, earth starts to look a lot like family. And this is my message today. Um, uh, it's really on the heart of God that we transcend and are delivered from a me and mine culture into an us and we family, um, because that is the only way that the world's going to know. It is the only way that they're going to see and know that Jesus was loved by the Father, that the Father sent him, and that he loves us. And if he loves us, he loves them. It's the only way. Um, but there's a, there's, a lot, <laughs> there's a lot that tempts us um, otherwise. Um, before I get into the word, though, I think this is only like my third time to ever teach on a Sunday. And so I just want to give you a little background because probably 90% of the room has no idea who I am, which is totally fine. Um, but I came to Upper Room in 2012, um, fresh off the boat of 
what I call a very successful season of rebellion. Um, it was <laughs> successful because I managed to make a complete mockery of my life. Um, but I had a sovereign encounter. I was home alone, and the Lord, just in his mercy, came for me. And he left the 99 and came after this one. And so I say that as by way of testimony for those of you with family that um, look hopeless. So did I. But he came for me, so um, don't lose hope. He came for me, and in a moment, it was a holy encounter. It wasn't warm fuzzies. It was holy terror, fear of the Lord. And man, my life got burned right side up real quick. And in 24 hours, my whole life changed. Um, so shortly after that, I end up at Upper Room. Crazy story. Don't have time to get into it. But it was kind of a divine setup that I ended up here. And I walked in the door. <laughs> Hadn't been in church in six years. Still had, you know, it was a little rough around the edges. <laughs> I won't tell you exactly what I thought. I'll give you the PC version. But I walked in, and everyone was really nice, and I felt really welcomed. And um, But then worship started. And I'm not familiar. At the time, I was not familiar with this kind of environment that much. And so uh, I started to see people worshiping God. And I'm like, what is wrong with these people? You know, that in those days, we were a hardcore ragtag group of weirdos. I mean, it was like even more weird than it is now. And I was like, what is wrong with these people? And I, kept, I, I had this thought. I'm like, these people look ridiculous. Again, it was stronger language in my head at the time. I was rough around the edges. But as soon as that thought came into my mind, like a thunderbolt from heaven, I heard that kind of internal audible voice of God. You know, when you, like, know that you know that God's speaking to you? And he said, Kev, desperation does funny things to people. These are my children. They're desperate for me. What you call ridiculous, I call beautiful. So, of course, then I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> Crying, snot, continue to cry and snot the entire service. Make my way to my car to cry and snot for about 20 minutes before I could pull myself together enough to make it home. And uh, I knew, okay, I found my family. I found, um, I found my tribe. And so shortly after that, I did the residency uh, with Trace. We were in the residency together back in the day. There were six of us that did residency together. Um, and uh, I sat in prayer a lot, which was new for me and a stretch. And I sat um, under the teaching and culture that God was establishing here. And slowly but surely, I discovered um, a love from God, a love for God, and a love for this house that um, changed me. And after residency kind of wrapped up, I knew that my time here wasn't done. I knew that this community was um, not only a community that I wanted to continue to be poured into by, but I knew that it was... Um, a community that, uh, well, I would have been scared to say this at the time, but I can say it confidently now, that I really think my entire life will be spent being poured out um, on, in sacrifice and service for this house. And so I stuck around and um, did odd jobs and basically worked for free for a handful of months and was faithful with a little and got trusted with more and came on staff and still had odd jobs and was faithful with a little and entrusted with more and took over the residency and faithful with a little and entrusted with even more. 
And it was a low, slow, and sometimes really challenging road. Um, but I can honestly tell you now <laughs> that where it stands and where I stand today, there's really not an aspect of this family, this community, uh, that I'm in some level not involved in. Um, my position is just um, wide stretching, and I kind of got my hands all up in Upper Room's business, um, which is good. And actually, it's funny because Upper Room, <laughs> Upper Room has its hands all up in my business too. Because I'm like, this is my workplace. This is the place that I worship. My friends are here. My family are here. And then recently, my wife gets brought on staff, and I'm like, holy Moses! Like, Upper Room found its way into my marriage. Like, there's not an aspect of life that is free from upper room, but I consider it joy. Um, so sometimes it can be a little challenging. You know what I mean, right? Sometimes that can be a stretch. No, I am really thankful, though. I love this place. I love you. I love what God's doing here. I love the leadership of this place. Um, so from that position uh, of being kind of all up in the business um, of upper room, it gives me a really unique perspective. Um, I get a lot of opportunity to observe. I see a lot. I hear a lot. Um, I get to see a lot of our successes, a lot of our strength. I get to celebrate those things. Um, but I also see our weaknesses. And I see sometimes our failures. Um, and I get to work um, to uh, apply grace and strength to those things as well. And so it's from that place of perspective um, that I really want to share uh, a concern in the heart of God, in this amazing season that we're in um, of favor and blessing. Because I tell you, he's really, um, he really desires to use you, to use us, um, to change the landscape, not only of this city, but I really, I really am convinced the church uh, in this nation, which will lead to a change in the nation, which will lead to a ripple effect of changes in the nations of the earth. I think if we knew, if he would peel back the curtain of the invitation, the magnitude of the invitation that you and I share by being in this room at such a time as this, I think it would overwhelm us. I don't think our pride could handle it, to be honest. Um, and so um, he's really, really adamant about building um, a house that is chock full a family. Um, so months ago, <clears throat> Miller taught this really incredible message on comparison. Does anyone remember that message? Yeah, it was bomb. If you have not heard that message, um, go and find it on our podcast. It was probably, it wasn't probably, in my opinion, it was the best um, teaching he has ever given. Um, it was clear, it was strong, it was convicting, it was powerful. Um, and he was summing up comparison as a fruit of a brotherly culture and um, comparing that to the Father's culture, which is the kingdom of heaven. And if you weren't impacted specifically by that message, you were definitely impacted by what happened afterwards. And what happened was after the Sunday night service, he preached his message, he was done for the night, and the Spirit of God just overtook him and ushered in a season of, of really a couple months of um, 
a deeper degree of intercession and travail and prayer for this community, um, especially our leadership, like we hadn't really seen before. And so I'm sitting in the midst of this and, and watching and observing again from the position that I have. And I'm realizing this is interesting because there's a message that comes forth about comparison. Um, there's an invitation that comes forth delivering that's deliverance from a brotherly culture into a fatherly culture, but yet the way that God backs up that message is by releasing grace to pray. That didn't, I didn't understand that fully. Um, it didn't quite make sense to me, but I was able to discern enough to go, there's something about prayer and a lifestyle of prayer that liberates us from sibling rivalry, that liberates us into the Father's culture. I didn't quite understand that until this week, how and why that is, um, why a lifestyle of prayer, giving ourselves over to prayer, liberates us from us and liberates us into our Father's kingdom, our Father's culture, our Father's reality, um, so that we can be an us and a we uh, and not a me and a my culture. So we are going to start in Hebrews 12. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Hebrews 12. Um, while you're doing that, I'll give you kind of a backstory. <clears throat> because Hebrews 12 talks about Esau. I didn't want to do the Britney Spears mic. I was like, I don't have the preaching mojo yet to rock that Britney Spears mic. Give me a handheld. Um, so uh, Hebrews 12 talks about Esau. Esau is an Old Testament figure, in case for those that aren't familiar, I'll sum up his life real quick. Esau was the son, he, um, he had a twin brother named Jacob, son of Isaac. Um, his mom was Rebecca. So when Rebecca's pregnant, she has this prophetic experience where the Lord tells her that she has twins in her womb, because this is before ultrasound. And so she has twins in her womb, and that both children are nations. Um, both are called to influence, both are called to a degree of power, both will become great in their own way. Now, what's interesting is one will become great under the rulership of a brotherly culture, while the other will become great by establishing the form of the father's culture in what would become Israel. So she has this interesting encounter where the Lord tells her, hey, you got twins. They're both going to be nations, but the older is going to serve the younger. Now, that makes no sense because in that culture, the older had the birthright. The older had the promise. The eldest son got everything, everything the father owned, everything the father worked for, all the territory the father had um, cultivated and occupied, everything that, that was went to the firstborn, and the rest served him, and that just continued the lineage. So it was an interesting thing that she's told, no, no, actually the younger's going to lord over uh, the older. When we find out why later, uh, they're now adults. Esau is working the field. He's an avid hunter, strong guy, really talented. Jacob just hung out at home a lot in tents. It says, I'm not sure what that means, but it makes a point to say he was a gentleman who hung out in tents. So, um, He's there, Jacob's there, cooking up some bread and some stew. And um, <clears throat> Esau walks in, having worked really hard, and 
he's hungry. In that moment, Esau, operating under a brotherly culture mindset, is occupied by his own appetite and makes a demand of Jacob. You give me something to eat. Give me some bread. Give me a meal. Now, Jacob is a little, um, you could say a little shady, but I'll say he was seizing an opportunity. I'll give him the benefit of the love covers over a multitude of sins. I love you, Jacob, in heaven. Um, he sees an opportunity and could tell that his, his brother was concerned about himself, his own appetite, and in that moment, what he temporarily needed. And so he said, I'll give you some bread. I'll give you some meal. I'll give you some stew if you sell me your birthright. So, of course, Esau, um, he does. He's like, yeah, yeah, what's a birthright to me? And I'm starving. Give me some bread. Um, and effectively, Esau managed in a single moment of being self-consumed, dictated by his own appetite, uh, he lost everything. He lost his birthright, and that's where we pick up in Hebrews 12, um, starting in verse um, 15. <clears throat> it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or profane like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal for a single piece of bread. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Okay. So, obviously, from the story of Esau, it's clear that Esau lost sight of, of the weight of his life in the noise of his immediate appetite. That's, that's clear. But what was weird when I, the Lord brought me to this passage in that meeting on Monday praying, knowing that it was speaking about us, it didn't make sense why it says, don't be sexually immoral and profane like Esau. Because I'm like, there's nothing clear. I mean, Esau later in his life does marry some Canaanite women, which I guess is, you know, kind of, sexually immoral for the time. I don't know. Um, but there's nothing in the context of selling his birthright that's sexually immoral or even overtly profane. And so I was like, that, that's bizarre to me. And so I dug a little deeper and I looked into those words and I love, I love doing word studies. It's so it's just such a, it's a fascinating way to just get a little deeper, to see a little bit more into um, what, what's being said. And I found out that those two words are, um, the first word for sexually immoral is the word pornos. It comes from the root word porneia. Now, Michael's taught on porneia a lot, um, some amazing messages. Um, I'm not really going to get down that road. But that word, porneia, pornos, in this context, um, its literal meaning, its connotation is uh, prostitution. But its literal meaning is to sell off or to sell out. Now, that intrigued me. Because as soon as I saw that, I was like, I'm like, Lord, you're teaching me something here. Because I, I can't see how Esau was sexually immoral, but I totally see how he sold out. How he prostituted his blessing for a single piece of bread. 
So then I look up the second word, bebelos, or bebelos, if you're a Greek scholar and I'm butchering these, show me grace. Bebelos. Uh, it's translated profane. Again, um, the connotation of the word is profane. It's unholy. But the, the literal translation, translation of bebelos is uh, to gain unauthorized access to. It's basically the equivalent of trespassing, right? So when I saw this, it was so clear. And the message opened up and the puzzle pieces started to come together. That Esau as the embodiment of a brotherly culture, as a worldly system, we're told not to be like Esau, who sold out to gain premature, unauthorized access to something. How often are we tempted to do that? How often are we tempted to do that? I can think of my, in my own life. I was in my early 20s. Um, I, I was like fresh off the mission field. I had all these prophetic promises. I mean, a ton from places all over the world. I mean, it was so in my face that I knew that I knew that I knew that God was speaking. And it was all about how I was going to speak and teach and I was going to stand before thousands of people and this message would come forth that would result in repentance and liberty and the fear of the Lord. And I was like, yeah. And in my youthful zeal, when I came back to the States, I'm like... I'm finding my pulpit, my platform, and I'm getting this message going. And so I found a church that was growing much like this one, um, but actually at an even greater rate. And um, without knowing it, I began to prostitute my call um, to gain access. And subversively, I start looking around. Okay, who knows who? so that I can get to know them, so that I can eventually get to know them, so that I can eventually get discipled by him, so that I can get my foot in the door here. I mean, that's like wicked. And I wasn't aware that that's what I was doing, but I was doing it. I was manipulating my way into trying to get access to something that um, I didn't have the authority to obtain yet. And so I had a degree of success, though. And before I know it, I am being discipled by the head honcho, and I am leading worship for this massive church, and I am uh, leading a small group, and I'm working my way towards um, a real position and placement there until 2006 when everything came crashing down and my sin found me out, and I fell hard, 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 hard. And for six years, I sat in that failure. You know, the scripture says pride comes before a fall, and it did. It definitely did. But I look back on that now, and I realize that that place, that family, though I honor them and bless them, and I'm so thankful for that church and that body of believers in the city, that was not my birthright. This was my birthright. This was my family. Not that. This. And so the Lord effectively saved me from making the same mistake as Esau. But how often are we tempted to do this? I mean, it's as mundane. I'm going to hit a couple buttons. Y'all hear me because I love y'all. <laughs> and there's no shame, right? Praise God. I just told you, been there, done that. It's as subtle and subversive as buying followers on Instagram to sell out your feed to look like you have influence and popularity you don't have. It's as as extreme 
as selling out your own integrity to make a little bit more money in that business deal, knowing that the way that you did it was just a little bit crooked. Not, not fully wrong, but just bending it a little bit. It's, we're tempted in the workplace to forget and sell out that we're salt and light in the world to start stepping on the necks of our coworkers to climb the corporate ladder to get the position and the, the paycheck that we think that we deserve instead of trusting that promotion comes from the Lord. That if you humble yourself under his hand, he exalts you in due time. And when he exalts you, you don't have to maintain your own exaltation because it wasn't your work. You didn't earn it. You didn't get it on your own. You just got put there and then you get to enjoy it. And he goes before you and maintains it and builds on it. You don't have to. It's so much better. Trust me, it's so much better. It takes longer and it's harder and it strips you naked and bare, but it's better. It's a better way because I'm a lot happier. I know you can't tell through my tears, but I'm really happy. (laughs) Okay. Sometimes I get heavy and then I'm like, lighten up, Kev. Lighten up. That prophet side of me, I'm like, rah! Um, Okay, so I feel like I've hammered the problem enough. You guys get it? There's a temptation to be Esau, to buy into a brotherly culture. It is ever-present and before us. Um, And yet, as the people of God, as a house of prayer, we're to be about our Father's business. And our father's business is about building a father's culture, the culture of heaven. If Esau was about, you give me my bread, you give me my thing, my promotion, my attention, my affirmation, give me, give me, give me. It's like those seagulls on, what's it, one of those Pixar, mine, 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 you know, mine, 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 mine. Preoccupation with me and mine, if that's the brotherly culture, then the father's culture is us and ours. Now we see that perfectly displayed in a lifestyle of prayer in Luke 11. If you want to turn to Luke 11. Luke 11, the disciples come up to Jesus and they're like, They see something about Jesus' life, the way he, you know, we define prayer as relationship here. I don't know if if you're aware of that. I've always heard growing up prayer was a spiritual discipline. There is a discipline to prayer, um, but prayer is not a discipline. Uh, Prayer is relationship with the Father. And that's why there's joy in the house of prayer, because if it's just a discipline, then there's just weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's joy because it's relationship with a father who's good, who's really good. Um, So obviously the disciples see in Jesus an outworking, a display of relationship with the father through his prayer life that make them go, okay, you, you have something, you get something that we don't get, we don't see. And so one of them is bold enough to go, hey, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Now, he's not asking them, would you teach us how to pray? The Lord's prayer is not a model of prayer. Jesus is the model of prayer. Why? Because prayer is relationship. 
So Jesus is the model for relationship with the Father. Jesus is the model of prayer. The Lord's prayer is him putting the Father's heart, the, the culture of heaven, the Father's cultures, into words and giving it as a gift. So he says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. So if Esau, brotherly culture is, give me mine. Where's my foot in the door? Where's my opportunity? Why, I, why, why do they get appreciated? Where's my appreciation? Why are they on stage? Why did he get the business deal? Why, did, why do they have so much money? Um, the kingdom of the father, fatherly culture, is that we all get to eat. That though there's diversity in the meal, that all that sit down at his table get to dine on him and are satisfied. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give you a funny example. If you know me at all, this is a shameless plug. If anyone who owns this restaurant is watching, I expect a hookup. I love a restaurant called Uchi. Can I get an amen? Anyone been to Uchi? Hallelujah. Uchi, um, I refer to it as the third heaven. It is delicious. It is a sushi restaurant based out of Austin. I love Uchi. Um, and I'm going to tell you why, because it, it fits into the analogy. This is a parable. So we're all going to like hightail it out of here, like to grab lunch. Um, Uchi, to me, embodies so many things about the kingdom. <laughs> it really does. It really does. Wait for it. It does because Uchi, um, not only is it incredibly fresh, they fly in their fish every day from Japan. It's incredibly fresh. Um, the food is expertly crafted. The flavors are complex. It's done well. It's plated beautifully. The wait staff all serve every table. So it's not me and my table. It's you're sitting, it's us and our tables. It's a communal thing. So you have like 80 different servers. They're all just, they're all serving because it's, it's like us and our. So kingdom. Um, even the chef's tasting menu is called amakasi, I think in Japanese is how you pronounce it. Um, and it literally means to, uh, I trust you, that you're forfeiting your right to choose your own meal, trusting that the chef is going to give you not only the best of what he has, but that he's going to um, create for you to the best of his ability what he can make. Does that not sound like kingdom? Okay, told you. Now, if I was a six-month-old and I was taken to Uchi and I managed, you know, my parents ordered me some Gaitoro 72-hour braised short ribs and some yellowtail tuna belly sashimi and I managed to gum my way through that meal, um, at six months old, I would not be able to appreciate it. I wouldn't appreciate the complexity of flavor. I wouldn't appreciate the texture. I wouldn't be able to appreciate the beauty of it on the plate. I wouldn't, I wouldn't appreciate it. But even more than that, not only had my taste buds not developed enough, neither had my ability to digest that kind of food. 
And so if someone, though giving me something good, a.k.a. a night out at Uchi, good thing, not good at six months old, and though the meal would have been delicious and amazing, it would have turned my stomach sick, and I would have made a mess in my diaper and probably out of my mouth, and who's left to clean it up? My family. This is what it's like when we sell out to get access someplace that we're not ready for. We dine on things before, we've, before the character of Christ has been cultivated in us that can withstand the weight and the temptation and the warfare that surrounds that specific meal. And so we dine on it prematurely and we make a mess in our own family. So what's beautiful about the Father's table, what's beautiful about a Father's culture is that in all of the complexities and diversities of what he's feeding us, the gratitude isn't in comparing our meals. The gratitude and the joy is in celebrating that all are eating, that all are satisfied, that God in his goodness is giving to each one of us what is needed to strengthen and refine and purify and make strong our inner man. And for one person, it might look like the favor of a stage. And for someone else, the hiddenness of the back room. But if that's what he's serving up, it's good. And the person hidden in the back can celebrate the joy and success and the season of favor of someone on a stage. And someone on a stage can look admiring that one day what's sown in secret is going to be publicly displayed. And both are celebrating the diversity of the meal and all are satisfied. All are joyful. All are eating with grateful hearts. It's, if it's true, if it's true, if it's true that if one part of the body suffers or is sick, the whole body suffers, then it's equally as true that if one breaks through, one succeeds, one has favor, then all benefit as well. This is the Father's culture that we can look on with a handful of goldfish crackers and some Kraft mac and cheese and just be thankful that we're not going hungry instead of going, why'd they get to go to Uchi? That's not fair. Where's my Uchi invitation? If anyone wants to invite me to Uchi, though, I'll go. I'm just kidding. Um, okay, but that's not the end of the story. As we sit in this place of prayer, we're, we're, we're communing with the Father. As we sit in prayer, as we give ourselves over to a lifestyle of prayer, as you commit to not only at home alone, but in this place corporately, sitting together, sitting at his feet like Mary did, learning from him, learning what he's like, seeing how he sees, allowing him to redefine your paradigm and your value system. As we do that together, he does change our me and my into us and ours, but that's not the end. He's not done. And we see that later 
in Jesus' teaching on prayer. He says, and then he said to them, this is Luke 11, verse 5. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, don't bother me. The door's shut. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. But I tell you, though he will not give up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, which is persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, I've heard that before. I actually just had this aha this week in this, in this part of Luke 11. Because I'd always heard, ask and seek, knock, it'll be given, and I'd always applied it to myself. See, already, me and mine. You know, I maybe apply it a little bit with the us and ours. But look at the context of the story. He's asking for bread. The friend is asking for bread, but not for himself. He's asking for bread to feed others. This is where he wants to take us, that we're not just delivered from Esau, brotherly culture, muck and mire of me and mine, but we're actually brought into family under the Father's headship, knowing him so intimately that we become an us and ours so that we can eventually become about them. That it's us and our bread. Give us today our daily bread to give us bread for them. We're dining at the table together. We're all eating and satisfied, but there's people that don't even know the table exists. And this is why in Hebrews 12, why the root of bitterness that comes from thinking like Esau defiles many. Because if we are stuck on me and mine, we never enjoy us and ours, which means we never invite anyone to the table. And many are defiled. They're left in darkness. They're left starving and hungry. They, they can't dine with him. So, I feel... I feel so grateful for this season of favor and blessing that we're in as a community. I know life is not easy for everyone in this room. There's a whole gamut of life's circumstances and situations happening. But I am really thankful that as a community, we are in a, a time of growth and blessing. and <laughs> um, He's prospering us. I'm so thankful for that. Um, but there's a real, there's a real um, temptation in that blessing to find our way to sell out, to use it for our own advantage, to get access to stuff for our own pleasure. But I tell you, God wants to teach us to dine together. And then from dining together with him, he really does want to teach us to be the hands and feet that offer his bread, his living bread to other people. I'm so convinced that this house, you know, I was reminded some this week, 
Larissa had this, I think it was a dream, it might have been a vision, but I'm pretty sure it was a dream, um, early, early on um, of Upper Room, and this building had been built. And on top of it was this giant, just golden arm that spun around. You remember this? And um, spun around, and it was just distributing blessing in the city. And people from all over the planet were coming, not only to see what had been built, but to receive from this kind of constant blessing, this overflow of blessing that was coming. And, and that is what God wants to do. He wants to build us into a, a house whose arm is extended to bless our city. The way we do that is to give ourselves over. One way that we do that is to give ourselves over to prayer, to know the Father, to be set free and delivered from ourselves so that we can learn from Him, become like Him. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information about the Upper Room, please visit europe.org.